Reflecting on the water As the sun shuts her eyes Don't know why you'll uncover Watch the tide rolling With the moonlight Everything is silent On this wheezy bed You're listening to Missing Magnolias Scarlett and Michelle here I think we need to revert for this episode. It's Dr. Michelle Janice. Now that I can actually say your name correctly, just for our listeners to remember that Michelle is also an academic and we have another academic in the house. We'd like to welcome Fran Middleton. Welcome, Fran. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I should mention that Fran is a retired Nichols University librarian. It's nice to be able to converse on an academic level. So thank you for being here and definitely lending some credence to this case that you're about to help us cover today. (laughs) When I started, I knew absolutely nothing about St. Mary Parish in Morgan City. Morgan City was a town I drove across on the way to New Iberia to visit my sister. That's interesting to note and how you learned about this case. We'll get there in a minute. This case is Ada LaBeouf and the case of Dr. Thomas Stryer. It takes us back to 1927. I like, friend, that you mentioned you're not writing a novel, rather, you're writing a history. Right. I am writing a history. Frankly, it's a story that is so dramatic inherently in the events, in the time it occurred, that it almost seems like you couldn't turn it into fiction. Of course, the advantage of turning it into a novel would be that you wouldn't have to have footnotes and work cited pages. For those of just tuning in, we're local, so it's a real pleasure to be able to converse with other people that are local. Our motto is we tell stories of the murdered or missing, but certainly not forgotten. I think Ada's story definitely encapsulates upon that because this is largely a forgotten history. I can open it up to Michelle. I grew up in New Iberia. Michelle grew up in Church Point. I knew nothing about this It's great to see kind of a revival and interest because for people that aren't from the South, these stories have an impact generationally. And we see families and descendants shaped by these moments. Absolutely. I would agree. And I think some of those stories that we pass on tend to be the urban legends that conform with our traditional expectations about society. So sometimes the truth or the real experiences of the past are even forgotten on us locals. My mother is the one who told me this story. I've known this story since I was four. This case was incredibly well-known when it was going on. The crime occurred July 1st, 1927, when Morgan City was covered by the waters of the Great Flood. It ends on February 1st, 1929, when Ada LaBeouf and Dr. Dreher are hanged in the jail in Franklin, Franklin is the county seat of St. Mary Parish, and Morgan City was the scene of the crime. It was highly sensationalized. It was the talk of the town. It was a scandal. Though this may seem a bit odd to us in our generation, it was a mark of distinction to have a major crime, in this case, particularly a murder that involved adultery and scandal and ended in the first hanging of a woman in Louisiana. You need to bear in mind that Dr. Dreher and Ada LaBeouf were very respectable people. Then is now there's a certain class distinction made in crime and the sentencing of people. 
A third party was James Monroe Beadle, who was Dr. Dreher's handyman. He was a hunter and a trapper. He had no cash income other than Dr. Dreher. Almost everybody has said probably did shoot Ada's husband, James LaBeouf, on Friday evening, July 1st. Dr. Dreher and Ada LaBeouf had been having an affair. When I first started, I did not think they had actually had an affair. People blow incidents out of proportion, and people tend to take gossip as gospel, which it isn't. So I'm naive and trusting, and thought there probably wasn't an affair. Well, the first time I gave this talk at Nichols, Ada LaBeouf's great-granddaughter, Lynette Davis, who has been a tremendous help to me, set me straight. She said, oh, we all think there was an affair. I do think the affair was going on, had been going on for several years. There were rumors that Ada's youngest and only daughter, Libby, was Dr. Dreher's daughter. If you look at the pictures of them in old age, there is a striking resemblance between Dr. Dreher and Libby LaBeouf. You can't prove it, but there was a good bit of talk about it. Things really came to a head between James LaBeouf and Dr. Dreher two years earlier when a woman who Ada named as the woman from across the tracks wrote a letter to Mrs. Dreher telling her that her husband was having an affair with Ada Bonner LaBeouf. Mrs. Dreher, who is from Ohio, has three years of college. Now, this is 1927. This lady has three years of college, goes and shows the letter to James LaBeouf, who at first the two spouses dismiss it, but over time, suspicions creep in. By the time of the murder, James LaBeouf is stalking Dr. Dreher with a rifle. He's got a rifle in the back of his car. He has dressed in Ada's clothes, driving the family car, hoping that Dr. Dreher will approach him in an over-friendly manner, and then James LaBeouf is going to blow him away. The affair did exist. I would also like to say that by the time the murder occurred, Dr. Dreher was 55. He was in the latter stages of tertiary syphilis. Syphilis was a, a common disease at that time. Ada LaBeouf was 38. In all chances, most of the fire had gone out of the romance, but they had had a relationship, possibly a shared child, and so they did, upon occasion, run into each other. So there still was a closeness. James Beadle is a very enigmatic figure. He is a hunter and a trapper. He makes his living off the land. He has boasted to Dr. Dreher that he has killed a man and gotten away with it. Now, when I first read this, I thought, I don't think so. This is just a poor man trying to impress a much more prominent man, a man who provides cash income for his family. I was wrong because in January of 2020, there was an editorial in the Morgan City Review in which the editor said, that Jim Beadle was a liar, a thief, a cheat, and a murderer. Supposedly, shortly after World War I ended, Beadle had shot an elderly lighthouse keeper in Berwick. 
I can't find his name because no body was ever found. So without a body, you don't have an inquest. Without an inquest, you can't have a trial. However, it looks to me like he was a lighthouse keeper, either active or retired from the lighthouse that is in Berwick, which I think is called the South Reef Lighthouse, but I'm not sure. I have sitting next to me the 114-page book by Charles M. Hargroder. This is all that we have to go off of all the information on this story. I have to thank Pam Hefner here, your friend, because she sent me a copy of this book. And I didn't know this. Originally, I had read it from our local library, and they were disappearing off of the shelves. Mm-hmm. Pam, a letter-writing campaign, had this book that was published in 2000, I believe, reprinted and started selling them to people for about 20 bucks. So if anyone's interested, they can email us and maybe we can forward that email to Pam if she's still selling. Thank you for your efforts in reviving this story and keeping it alive. It is true that there's only one book and it's now 20 years old, but there are not many articles on it. I have not been able to find them. What I have had to rely on are newspapers I'm a newspaper junkie. I particularly love old newspapers. So this is not a chore for me. But when you're dealing with newspapers, there are certain limitations to the mode of delivering the news. And that's true in any medium. In 1927, the major media were, by far, newspapers. They were very profitable. And the idea of covering murders That pressure came from the tabloids in the big cities. The tabloids in New York City outsold the New York Times. Newspapers are businesses. They depend on advertisements. They have to sell. There was a tremendous amount of pressure on reporters and the newspaper industry to look for these kinds of things. St. Mary Parish, there were two newspapers. One was the Franklin Banner The other was the Morgan City Review. Both of these came out weekly, and they did not cover the trial that thoroughly. In fact, many issues from this period, from the St. Mary Banner, don't exist. They are not to be found. In addition to using those newspapers, I have used the Morning Advocate, which was the most modern in its coverage. The Times-Picayune, which was the broadest circulating newspaper. The New Orleans Item and the New Orleans States. These gave very, very detailed coverage. They initially painted Ada as this femme fatale. Obviously a woman who can convince a man to kill her husband and have an affair must be beautiful, must be movie store gorgeous. Well, that's not the case. He must be as handsome as Rudolph Valentino. That's not the case. She is an attractive woman who was very beautiful in her younger years. He is just one of those men who is never going to be handsome. He's kind of raw-boned, heavy-featured, heavy-headed. But he was a professional man, and he probably had a nice way about him. They're ordinary people, but... She is referred to as Messalina, Cleopatra, Lorelei, the Siren of the Swamps. Well, she's none of the above. He is referred to as a Lothario, 
a Beau Brummel, meaning he spends time on his appearance. It's just not so. James Beadle is Sancho Panza, to a degree, is accurate. They are portrayed in this way, Ada in a way that is particularly cruel, I think. They talk about her dresses. Her dresses are made by a woman in Morgan City. She does not sew her own clothes. This implies a certain degree of affluence. But she has bows on her clothes. Well, who at 38 wears bows? Most people are not wearing that anymore. They are made out of cotton. They have polka dots. All of these imply a certain juvenile quality to Ada. Mrs. Dreher, on the other hand, is chicly dressed. Her dresses are made out of silk. She has pearls. She has attractive handbags. Her face is beautifully made up. Ada's face is poorly made up. Her powder does not match her coloring. She doesn't know how to apply rouge. All this is cruel. And this is written by women journalists. One is Gwen Bristow. The other is Martha Dalrymple. I think what you're highlighting is definitely something that we see in our modern news outlets today when we're talking about women who are victims or perpetrators of crime. One of the traditional narratives that we use is that when women commit crimes is that femme fatale narrative. Siren of the Swamp is perfect to be consistent with how we tend to portray women in the news, hypersexualized, very conniving and controlling that they can manipulate this context. We take all these steps to sexualize and vilify both at the same time still today. She and Dr. Dreher were two people caught in unhappy marriages. Ada was particularly unhappy. James LaBeouf was abusive. His brother-in-law, Louis Blakeman, who was chief of police, said so on the stand. Ada's niece and godchild, Virginia Blakeman Monte, who grew up, who lived in Thibodeau, testified that James LaBeouf abused his wife. And she had been abused for the better part of an over 20-year marriage. I can't imagine what that is like. Now, she was not the only abused wife in Morgan City. That was not the only affair that was going on. But I will bet anybody who was having an affair in Morgan City was relieved that the main topic of a conversation was the Dreher LaBeouf affair because that way they could handle theirs very quietly. I do believe people understood and were sympathetic to abused spouses. I think there were people who did feel for Ada. It was interesting learning about this case as well as with the Hargroder book, how much of a spectacle this case was. This kind of follows a pattern in which What's more interesting, the affair, the murder, the trial? What is less interesting? What happens after the trial? The appeals process, going to the pardon board. That's not nearly as interesting. And I kind of flipped through newspapers. I did not make a serious study, but a casual glancing through. And it appears that this is the usual pattern. People are interested in the crime. 
They are not so interested in the legal or the justice aspect of it. If you think about it, if you read murder mysteries, everything is solving the puzzle of the crime. What you never see is the actual trial itself, except in the case of Perry Mason. But then he's unraveling the part of the crime, like who did what to whom, when, why. But you only see them leaving the courtroom. You don't see what happens when they go to jail. You don't know if they file an appeal. This is true of Matlock as well. And so I think this is just the way we are. I mean, I have had to read the appeals. I have had to read the court decisions. Let me tell you, they're not nearly as much fun as reading the newspaper accounts. I guess with this case, there's certainly some interesting legal things happening. The jury was 12 white men. There were no women on this jury. In many ways, this case played out in the newspapers. And your retelling of this case, what do you hope to expand upon? I would like... One thing, and this is a tremendous irony, the appeal had 101 bills of exception, 101. There were some motions to quash. One thing that everybody agreed on and got less base than anything was the fact that there were no women on the jury. The jury was all white, all male, and this was the way it was. Bear in mind, in Louisiana, women could not serve on the jury until technically 1920, but then there had to be legislation to allow that. The law was that in order for a woman to serve on a jury, she must inform the clerk of court in writing that she was willing to serve on the jury. All the justices on the Supreme Court agreed with that. There had been test cases in other states that proviso had been upheld. The rationale for this is women were such delicate creatures that they shouldn't have to endure this. These are women who had children at home, and it's very hard for any of us to fathom that that was the norm. It didn't matter what sex, what race, what age, what crime. The jury was always all male, all white. I don't know if you noticed this in your research, just because using the newspapers and court records, there's so much attention to Ada's clothing from this book. And I know that's the writer getting some creative license, but he's taking his cues from the newspapers and it even follows all the way up to the gallows at the end, what she's wearing. Yes. There's so many interesting women players in this tale. Mrs. Dreher was the typical professional man's wife. She did garden clubs. She was active in church work. She was an intelligent, well-read, capable woman. After he died, she stayed in Morgan City. She died in 1948, and she is buried in Morgan City. Dr. Dreher is buried in Clinton in East Feliciana Parish. So they are not buried together. After he died, she became the first public librarian in Morgan City. She was active in World War II relief work. She was active in her church. And she went on to have a career. It's like she came into her own. The woman from across the tracks, I do posit a theory that I think a woman named Laura Jeanette Hamilton 
Turner, and Turner is spelled T-O-E-R-N-E-R. It's a German spelling. May have written the letter. Her brother, Vance Hamilton, worked in Dr. Dreher's drugstore, and he is the one who told Sheriff Pecco that Dr. Dreher had a gun and was suicidal. I have looked up Laura Turner in court records. She and her husband, Robert, and his father, Robert, they were always borrowing money. They were never returning it. The Turners did have a grocery store. I cannot prove that she lived across the tracks because I can't find a property record. If they were renting, she could live across the tracks, and there would be no records. You have to own property and pay taxes on it to be able to verify that or to find it in a will or an act of sale, and I've not been able to track it down. I found a copy of a letter she wrote against her husband in the early 40s. She's not all there. She is not a normal personality. In the family, it seems like the marriage was unhappy. They're always having financial difficulties. It implies that there's an addiction of some kind, possibly Robert Turner is not faithful. He remarries within a year after her death. He marries in Lafouche Parish, which is atypical in Lafouche Parish at that time. He has a test for syphilis. That's fascinating. It must be so exciting when you uncover new information. <laughs> History's coming alive and you're helping bring it you to know, light. Well, the thing is, you have to dredge it up. I mean, I did not realize there was that much to dredge up. I nearly fell off of the rolling stairs that they have in the basement of the St. Mary Parish Courthouse. I was just flipping through something, and I ran across of that in about 1922-23. Police Chief Blakeman, James LaBeouf, the victim, Emory Bonner, Ada's brother, Tom Bonner, her other brother, and two other men were all arrested for bootlegging. You don't expect a police officer to be bootlegging. I just thought that was hysterical. I just love this. Because the case is so old, it requires a lot of, like, old-school investigation tactics. It's very old-school. And I think the average person today wouldn't know how to do all of that. We think that information is at our fingertips because of the Internet, but as a person who studies media, newspapers, and archives are pretty limited in regards to public access, even through the university, I'm sure that what we have at Newsbank is just a fraction of what has actually been out there, even something as close as 10 years ago, more or less a, a case from the 1920s. That's true. This is a very old school, but a favorite book of mine is called The Scholar Adventurers. I had to read it as a grad student in English. I have a master's in library science and one in English. And I got the English degree first. And we all had to read this book called The Scholar Adventurers. It came out in 1950, the same year I was born. It is one of those rare books I read and reread and I just absolutely love. I have to tell you that in there, and I can't remember who it was, he found Shakespeare's will and Shakespeare's mortgage. This is the only documents that prove that somebody named William Shakespeare physically existed. I just think the ultimate cool thing and the coolest scholar that ever lived was the person who found Shakespeare's will and Shakespeare's mortgage.
I just wrote down that book. It's got a delightful prose style, and it talks about serious scholarship. I think anybody who is a, a lover of literature or a scholar has that piece of work and then that moment that they can remember cracking that book open. That's like a tradition and a ritual to take those steps. I worry sometimes that we're losing. I love the digital age. It makes my job and my life a lot easier. But there's something to going and getting that book, cracking it open and having that experience. I worked in a library for 32 years and I've been retired for about 16. I can tell you that though I use the Nichols Library and students make the mistake of asking me to help them, I usually can't, but I try. I wonder, I go in there and I think, gosh, I used to work here and I can't operate the Starbucks coffee machine. Obviously, we went online, we had databases and all those things came about mid-career for me, maybe a little past mid-career. I deeply appreciate them. I really, really do. At the same time, I am so glad I had to use a card catalog, the Library of Congress, subject headings, those kinds of things, those paper sources. And I've had to rely on paper indexes. Not all of St. Mary Parish records are accessible online. I appreciate the work that you're doing with keeping a piece of our history, the good, the bad, and the ugly, in that way. Because we're in the same way when we lose a generation of our elders, we lose a piece of our history if we don't ask those questions and write those stories down. And I think we're close to losing some of those records that we have if we aren't careful to maintain them. When I hear this story, you know, 1920, women received the right to vote, when you were talking about that jury being not exactly a jury of their peers, we can recognize that, like, this is where we were, and this is where we're going, and hopefully we are moving in a direction that's positive. It was interesting with the book, the way it ends, because a big part of the story is the descendants and the children and what happens to them after, as well as I think kind of the trauma for this town. We mentioned Sheriff Pecco, who knew Ada and the doctor in the jail and must have spent quite a lot of time with them. And this must have affected him And Louisiana being a, a state of capital punishment. I can address what happened to the kids. Ada had four children. Joseph, the eldest, was 20. He went to Galveston to work. Now, this is when the oil field is booming. So he went there. That was typical. But obviously, it made his mother's situation made it easier for him. Ernest, the second son, who stayed with her much of the time and who was closest to her and looked most like his mother, stayed in Morgan City. He married. He had two children. His daughter was Lynette Davis's mother. Herman, who was 12 at the time of the crime, really had behavior problems. But that would be expected of a child that age and also losing his mother to a disgraceful death and his father to sudden death. He also went to Galveston, and he lived there and worked, but one day he committed suicide. Libby, the youngest, who was nine at the time of the crime, married and lived in Morgan City. Now, Libby, like 
her mother, Ada, was not very intelligent. And this came out in the sanity hearing in January 1929. Libby married. Her husband's name was Clifford. She was always the life of the party. She was taken care of all of her life. She was taken in as a child by the Blakeman family. The Blakemans had 11 children, and there were several children in near Libby's age. And Libby was reared by them. She married Clifford, and he did everything for her. In the Dreher family, Dorothy married a few years later. She married a man named Eugene Carstens from New Iberia. Weeks Hall, the last resident of Shadows on the Tesh, was best man in the wedding. The son, Ted, was going to go to medical school, but could not go after his father's death. He became an engineer, had a very good career in the oil industry, and he died in the Houston area. Polly, the youngest daughter, who would have been about 14 at the time of the crime, was really tragic. During World War II, she is living in Baton Rouge. She has married. Her husband is in the Navy. He comes back from the war, but not to her. He marries a, a woman from Plaquemine, Louisiana, and he's a bigamist. She then goes and lives in Houston, where she is a secretary. She's the first of the Dreher children to die. She dies of lung cancer. We've had other people on our show and from the area, and it was interesting to learn that they learned of their family history through school. I think you mentioned maybe Lynette's mom had learned about this case through. That's correct. Which is fascinating to have something like this happen in your family and have to hear about it secondhand, but maybe that's common for Louisiana. At that time, and even when I was growing up, things were kept more private. I'm not saying that was good or bad, but it was the way it was. You just didn't broadcast things. People were just more reticent. And in this case, I think there was communal shame and guilt involved because the way people had behaved and they just wanted to put it behind. The people in the St. Mary Parish Courthouse, the people in the libraries, the branches in St. Mary Parish, the people in the archives at Nichols, the library staff. And I have just been amazed at how cordial and open they have been, especially when you consider I'm not from St. Mary Parish and I'm investigating a topic they're not comfortable with. And it took a long time for people to become convinced that I was serious and I was not out to dig up dirt and write, deal with the seamy side of the situation. I know it's got a dark side. I'm sure Michelle has had to deal with, you know, you kind of have to be a little bit delicate in your approach and you have to be a little bit tactful in what you say, which means maybe you don't get exactly what you want, but you can hope you get something useful. Absolutely. That's the best approach. Franny, are you going to be a character at all in your history? Only as a person who tells the story and someone who has a strong voice as a writer. It's been a frustrating experience, but it's been a rewarding experience. I've had a lot of people at my back helping. Well, thank you so much. This has been a real treat. 
I think we could actually just go on and asking so many questions because it's like a treasure trove of knowledge on this case. It's very interesting, and I can't wait for your book. I need to get busy on it, but (laughs) I have been working. Thank you both, and have a nice rest of the day. Y'all take care. You too. Bye.